1: To the silver screen. Welcome, listeners, to another special review of, this time, a film that I don't think we usually would have done on the podcast, maybe have, I know we've talked about it, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a chosen five Disney film of, I mean, obviously, the popular book series from C.S. Lewis. Um, so with me, I have... Uh, Tommy. Tommy. And... Andrew! Yes, so us three are back again. Um, We were together last podcast because we had... No, sorry, two podcasts ago because we had done Swiss Army Man. But then we also had a special guest on last week to do Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark with us. That was Hayden. So us three are back to record... Uh, to record this one, and I'm—I know that this is a film that we are all very nostalgic for. I—I mm-hmm. um, I guess we'll go with you, Tommy. How did you first see this? I know how Andrew and I
2: first saw it, I believe, but how did you see it? I remember this was big at my church back in 2005 when I was in Sunday school. Like, uh, I was not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia before the movie. Uh, I was obviously in third grade, so. The uh, literature behind The Chronicles of Narnia was a little advanced for me, I guess. But um, I remember seeing trailers for it and my mom saying, oh, that's going to be good because she was familiar with it. So I remember we went and we saw it in theaters uh, as a big church group, Mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of families. It was like an event that we all planned. And uh, we went and saw it. And I'll be bringing up in the podcast, like, the moments that stood out to me when I was in the theaters, because I still remember this theater experience. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, do you remember how we saw it? I think
1: I remember, but I'm not, you know, 100% positive. No. Okay. Well, that's what I thought. Um, Yeah. So, uh, man, I'm trying to remember how we did see this. I know we got it for Christmas one year, but I think it may have been you guys that showed it to us, Tommy. I think you may have showed it to us. I don't exactly remember. I do remember when this movie came out, though. Um, because, you know, the book series was kind of being revamped, or at least the language the Witch, and the Wardrobe book itself. Um, they was revamping it because of the, you know, the motion picture that was coming out. And that was what really sparked my interest is, you know, I, I think I'm pretty, su- I'm pretty sure I, ar- I had already heard of it, but had never read the books. Um, and I kind of got interested because of this movie that was coming out. I remember reading uh, The Magician's Nephew um, at one point. I don't know if I read it all the way through, but I read a good chunk of it Um, because I was wanting to read them all the way through, because this is not the first in the series. This is, I think, the second one, right? Yes. Yeah. So I was also partially confused as to, you know, why would they start in the second? Uh, Why would they start with the second book in the series? Now, looking at what movies come after this, it makes a little bit more sense, because it does focus on the Pevensie children in those three books. Um, This one, that one being The line, the the Witch, in the Wardrobe, obviously, Prince Caspian, and the later on, Voyage Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But... Yeah, I don't exactly remember how I ended up seeing this, but this is a movie that is extremely nostalgic for all of us. Uh, We used to sit and quote this movie when we were little, and we used to love watching it during Christmas time or something like that. I I was going to say,
2: um, back in the days, it had to be like third and fourth grade for me. So fifth grade for you, Alan, and I don't know, you and Hayden. Second grade, first
3: grade, first grade.
2: First grade and second grade, sure. Something like that. So we would be in our grandparents' house and we would start re reenacting this movie like from I I think the moment where they begin playing hide and seek uh, during like that rainy day is like where we would always pick it up and we never got farther than the wardrobe uh, going into the wardrobe, I think. Um, It was weird. But I I remember, Alan, you you always, always took... uh, the position of Peter. Right. And nobody else could be Peter. It was right. you. And I was Susan. And I hated it because uh, Su- Susan was a really boring character to act during this time of the film. Or in, we'd acted it out. Right. And then Andrew, you were Edmund and Hayden was Lucy. And I'm sure he was not thrilled about that either, <laughs> but he always wanted to tag along anyway. So you right. did it anyway. But I, I just remember us being, we were playing or we were reenacting and you'd be like, Uh, And I'd have to be like, come on, Peter, gastrovascular. And you're like, is it Latin? And you had your little British accent. Yeah. I said, yes. And then, yeah, it was just something dumb that we did, but we love doing it. Yeah. I
1: I don't know how many times we've watched this as a family, a good chunk. A good number of times, obviously. Um, But yeah, it's no secret that this is a very nostalgic movie for us. And I was scared at one point because I wanted to get it on Blu-ray when I started when I finally started collecting Blu-rays, I wanted to get the Blu-ray. And it was like almost out of spot, almost out of stock on Amazon. And it was like like, you know, so many left in stock, not sure if we'll get any more, kind of a thing. And I was like, oh no. And so I bought one for you for Christmas. Cause I yes. think at one point uh, we both had it on DVD. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically you had the widescreen version. I, I had two. Copies of the wide. Yeah, screen. two.
2: Yes, that's right. You did. Yeah. I don't know why. I just I, they're still in our basement. Like I'll yeah. go home and like to my parents' house, and I'll look over and I'll see them just side by side on our movie shelf for right. all the DVDs. I'm like, why do we have two of them?
1: Right. Yeah. and We always had the full screen version, but I know for a good number of years we used to watch it. You know, it was almost traditional tra- tra- tradition that we would watch this before Christmas at some point whenever cuz that's when we were all together or during the summer or whatever.
2: Yeah, this is a very special movie to me.
1: Yeah, but back to my Blu-ray story. So, I remember when it was like almost out of stock on Amazon, it was really cheap. It was like $7 or something like that. And so I bought it for you for Christmas. And then it was right after I bought it for you for Christmas that it went out of stock on Amazon. Um now it has since been restocked, but at the time I was scared that, you know, I won't be able to ever get this again, but I ended up getting it for you for Christmas instead. Um, so that I, that I remember happening, um, and being kind of a big moment. Cause at that time we hadn't seen it for probably a couple years. It has been a while and yeah. I was
2: so excited to get it on Blu-ray. I'm like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. This is awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: So, all right, well we can go ahead and get into some scores and money here real quick. Cause I was a little bit surprised, but not, I guess not too surprised by what it ended up earning. Um, now it has a 6.9 on IMDb. Um, which is a little bit lower than the rest of the scores here because a meta score at a 75, Rotten Tomatoes at a 76% critic score, 61% audience score, cinema score at an A+, which is a big feat, and a Letterboxd score of a 3.3. So IMDb looks to be kind of the odd one out, although Letterboxd looks to be not too far behind that. Either way, the scores for this movie are looking rather high, which is very promising coming into a movie like this. Um, You know, given that this is a book based off of a Christian uh, book author, C.S. Lewis, um, you know, it's I'm surprised that Disney was Disney picked it up and uh, was making a movie off of that. But it still did very well. And in terms of box office returns, uh, its budget was one hundred and eighty million, which is about typical for a a Disney movie of this caliber. Um, Opening weekend, sixty five point six million with a domestic total of two hundred ninety one point seven million Foreign markets at $428.8 428.8 million for a worldwide total of 720.5 million. So it did very well in the box office, which is again not too big of a surprise given that it no it's coming right off the coat heels of Lord of the Rings that had ended I think like a year before this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's by Disney, right? So it's kind of like like the children's Lord of the Rings almost, which is a little bit. Into, we'll get. In, we'll kind of get into that a bit more in the spoiler section. But it's interesting to see Disney kind of hop on this train. And right after Lord of the Rings wrapped up with the Return of the King, they come out with Chronicles of Narnia, which is very similar in a lot of
2: ways to Lord of the Rings. Yes, it is. Um, and you know the reason why they're so similar is because both authors were both in a literary group, a literary discussion group called uh, Inklings. Uh, that they in London would um, go and discuss literature, J.R. Tolkien mm-hmm. uh, and um, C.S. Lewis. Uh, so that's why we get a lot of similar our similarities in the in both Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. Um, because, well, for one thing, the trees. We talk about the trees a lot in yeah. both uh, Narnia and uh, Lord of the Rings. The Ents in Lord of the Rings, and then the trees being messengers and spies and um, in Chronicles uh, of Narnia, which I'd like to touch base on later in the podcast, because I want to know what your guys' take take is on why these two authors and really good friends uh, decided that trees were a big part of communication. Yeah, in in their books. But regardless, um, Disney, I want to say because you're you're saying it piggybacks off of Lord of the Rings. Yes, it did do a very good job, and because it was Disney, it had to be a lot more family friendly um which you know is it's fine it it did great like the action the intensity the emotion um it it's it stretches pretty far for a disney movie like it does this movie could very well be a pg-13 with uh, all the action scenes and like the arrows getting you know people getting pelted with arrows or just the sword play all that kind of stuff uh the even the the the, the practical effects of some of these creatures like this scared me as a third grader, but yet it's it's PG uh, and Disney, you know, Lord of the Rings being PG-13 and, and insanely, um, insanely violent for the most part. Like, right. Uh, you, you definitely see that barrier. But um, yeah, bravo to Disney for really uh, giving us something that we can both be completely entertained uh, and not thinking, oh, this is just a dumb kids adaptation of it, because it's really not. It's for everybody. It 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 really works.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty PG for battle sequences and frightening moments. Um, and yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head. This does kind of push that PG theater, or the PG rating. Um, now I would argue that the, even the second movie pushes it even farther. Oh yeah. But I would say if you're a movie that's rated PG. And given what we have, especially with the ending battle scene, um, that does kind of, you know, hearken to some of the Lord of the Rings-like um, elements of it. It's kind of, I remember being a kid, when I was a kid, um, it was a lot of fun watching this because, you know, I, I, couldn't watch, I couldn't watch Lord of the Rings because it was, you know, a bit more violent than this. But this, based off of a Christian book author, uh, I was allowed to watch this. One of the very few movies when we were kids, Andrew, that we were actually allowed to watch. Yep. Um, and so... I remember being like excited because it was one of the few movies where I could actually watch a battle scene like this and not have to, you know, hide it from my parents. So, yeah, I remember at the time I was thinking I'm I was shocked that this is PG and even today I'm still a little bit shocked that, you know, it did still get away with a PG rating, but looking back on it, it while I think it did push it a bit, it's not something that I would say, "Oh, it's PG-13." That just feels wrong for me to say that this movie is a PG-13 movie more than it is a PG movie because it has nowhere near the level of violence that Lord of the Rings does. Although it does, they do come somewhat close to one another. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and start the spoiler talk now. So if you haven't seen Chronicles of Narnia, The Line of Witch and the Wardrobe, I would highly recommend that you do. It is on Disney+, Plus, so that's a good thing. Um, Pretty easy to get your hands on now. Like I mentioned, the Blu-ray at one time was hard to get, but it looks like now it's like being on Disney+, Plus. it's not hard to find. So you can always pause the podcast and come back later when you have watched it. And of course, we'll be here because, you know, modern podcast apps, they will save your place. But from here on out, this is now spoiler talk. So if you don't want to put this film to be spoiled for you, you can go watch it and come back. We'll be here. So that is your warning. It's World War II, and to protect her children, the mother of the four Pevensey children sends them off to stay with a professor. In his home lies a large wardrobe in which the youngest of the four, Lucy, enters while they play a game of hide-and-seek, and she falls into the land of Narnia, where she meets Mr. Tumnus, a fawn. He warns her of the White Witch and sends her back. Lucy tries to convince her siblings of, w- of what she's found, but she's blown off for her wild imagination. Later on that night, Edmund sees Lucy re-enter Narnia. While Lucy visits Mr. Tumnus again, Ed is picked up by the White Witch, and she tells him to bring his siblings to her, and in return, she will reward him. Later on, the four are playing a game of cricket in the backyard, and Ed hits a ball, breaking a window, and knocking over an expensive suit of armor in the inside. Afraid of Mrs. McCready finding them, they all run and end up hiding in the wardrobe, thus landing themselves in Narnia. Lucy leads the group and they meet a couple of talking beavers after Lucy leads them to Mr. Tumnus' destroyed home. They figure the witch will soon come after them, so the beavers take them to safety. Father Christmas meets up with them and gives them all gifts with the message that Aslan is on the move. Lucy gets a dagger and a healing potion. Susie receives a a bow and arrow along with a horn that will bring her safety whenever she blows it. And Peter receives a sword and shield. The group head to Aslan's camp and meet with the Great Lion. A group is sent to retrieve Edmund from the witch's camp, and in return, the witch visits Aslan, quoting the deep magic to him. If stolen, the traitor must die. Aslan and the witch reach an agreement, and on that night, Aslan heads to the stone table in a sacrifice in place of Edmund. News spreads of Aslan's death, and his followers decide to fight anyways, led by Peter. Aslan and the girls head to the witch's castle and bring back all those who turned to stone to aid in the concurrent battle. Aslan's men follow Peter as the two armies clash, and it's clear that the opposing side has the upper hand. Peter sends the signal to fall back to the rocks and hopes to ambush them. But the White Witch goes out on foot toward Peter, and Edmund steps in, hoping to stop her. And he brings her stone-turning wand in the process. The Witch stabs Edmund with what's left of the wand, and Peter rushes after her. She bests Peter, but Aslan shows up with more men. The Lion tackles the Witch, killing her, ending the war. Lucy runs to Edmund's side and puts a drop of her potion into his mouth, which ends up healing him. Later on, the four Pevensey children are crowned kings and queens of Narnia. Many years have passed, and the siblings are riding their horses through the forest as they come across a very familiar lamppost. Lucy hops off her horse and turns away from the group, leading them back out of the wardrobe. The four fall out as if no time had passed, and the professor opens up the door, questioning why they were playing in the wardrobe. You wouldn't believe us if we told you, sir, Peter says. Try me, the professor replies. Later on, Lucy heads back to the wardrobe, hoping to re enter Narnia. I don't think we will get in that way. I've already tried, the professor says already sitting, waiting. It'll probably happen when you're not looking for it, he continues, as credits roll. Okay, so I want to start off with this opening scene. Um, because of everything else that we come across in this film, this is by far the most, out, or I guess, the most disconnected or at least thematically disconnected from the rest of the film when it comes to its setting, right? Because it starts off with planes overhead bombing a city in somewhere in England, it looks like. And we, this is where we meet our children. They're being rushed into their bomb shelter. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts when you op- when you see this opening? Um, because this is again something that's setting-wise very, very different from whatever from whatever else we're about to get into after the fact. So, what are your thoughts? I, I guess I can start with you, Tommy.
2: What are what are your thoughts on this opening? Can I talk about the music? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, because uh, I'll, I'll get into that scenery in a second here, and like the setting and the opening. But can I just start off by saying that this this film score is number one on my list of like favorite film scores. Like this is the film score for me. This is what I base a lot of my um, both sci-fi and fantasy kind of scores when I'm working on stuff like that. What I like base off of it's, it's so inspiring. It starts off with the Blitz, like that's the name of the uh, the the track on the on the soundtrack, um, and it's accompanied like. With the planes, with the sirens and all that, it makes for a really intense score. I will be hundred percent, hundred percent honest. It it does. It, it feels like it works. It sets up the reason the kids are led to where they need to be. I don't think it's out of the ordinary. It's out of place. They need a reason to be uh, relocated. So this the and if you watch the entire opening scene um it's intense they're they're in the middle of like the drop zone like there are bombs like blowing up the house right next to them uh it shatters the glass you know you know Peter and Edmund like when Edmund runs back in and grabs the uh the picture which may I say like that siren that plays that has that intense or that intense uh gradual rise to it as he runs in he's like Edmund he's like wait daddy he runs in he's like the ee- and boom it hits and they jump down and the window blows out. Oh, I can still remember like I, I when we were rewatching it it still makes me like quiver. I'm like, "Oh, it's so good." Uh just the sound editing, but I don't know. To, to really just capture like wh- this entire first scene, I think it's necessary. Um it's it's intense and it really sets up why the children go where they go.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too because, you know, we start off with a war, right? We're in the middle of a war. Ah, in the yes. And then when the film is at its climax, uh, the Pevensey children who are, are, before they were, you know, hiding in a bunker, now are fighting in a war,
2: yeah, right? It's very so ironic. It so like it's yeah. It's ironic and it's really good character development. Well, right?
3: also copies the fact that they were, plain source speak, in the ending too with the... I don't know what they're called, lines with wings. Oh, you yeah. You got the Phoenix
2: and because uh, right.
3: Well, not the Phoenix, the whatever the lines with wings are doing. They're sure. doing the exact things that the, yeah, the gar- beginning were doing. I think were they doing. were
2: gargoyles or something like sure, that. Sure, yeah, gargoyles. They, they, they were with the rocks. They had the rocks. Yeah,
3: they had yeah. the rocks and they were dropping the rocks, which is saying that it's the same thing, but it's more or less switching the sides on what. I don't know, that's my train of thought. There there's a visual there's a visual comparison there between the There it is. Of them. It's yeah. the comparison between the beginning and the end, where the end is obviously more where they're into you've got to be kidding me i believe in you Andrew. i believe in you in the beginning there are planes that right. are throwing bombs in the end there are plane like creatures throwing rocks at you get where i'm going i know what you're saying okay yeah. well then good let me stop talking for a bit okay okay
1: well, Andrew. Uh, aside from the planes, just in uh, in general, what are your thoughts on this opening?
3: No, uh, there's a completely uh, there's a completely different contrast on how two different wars are viewed. This one is definitely a darker, more sinister type battle that's happening. Where it's really, it it. I guess you could say there's two. Yeah, there is two sides because th- some of the planes still get hit at the beginning, but then it's more. Um, at the end, it's a little bit more of not such a dreary tune. I mean, it's still a battle, so it's like more of a glory, not glorious type thing, but it's more of a um, an overture rather than
2: a, uh, I don't know, Tom, it's more. He, ha, think about it this way. I see the opening with World War II being man versus man, and then in Narnia, it's good versus evil, evil, biblically, yeah. almost. Fair enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we'll, I, and we'll get into some of the more biblical themes
2: because I think it, it's, it's th- impossible this is a, to talk about this movie without you, that. You can't not bring up the biblical because that's what right. C.S. Lewis did. It, right. it was it was based off of uh, the story of salvation. Exactly, yeah, exactly.
1: So I think I think here are kind of my thoughts. I kind of mentioned it a second ago with, you know, that it is a war and then later on there is uh, a, a, a similar war that's fought, but this time the Pevensey children are in it, Right. Really quick, a setup: who these characters are, right? Um, because when we first meet Lucy, she's like hiding in her bed, and Susan comes in and saves her, right? She's and as we find out later, she's the more logical one um, of the of the group, and Lucy's the more like um, his hospitality
2: uh, of the group, helping hand, very loving, yeah, caring,
1: yeah. Uh, Peter is very much a, a rule follower and is kind of like the leader of his four children. And I think that's why I also, when I was a kid, I, I looked up to Peter because I am also the oldest of us four of us four boys, right? Um, or I guess of the I guess of all our cousins on the side of the family. Um, so I remember I remember really connecting with this character. Um, but yeah, he's always very much a leader. He's, he's very much a leader. And then Edmund's kind of like, you know, he's kind of the rogue one, right? He's the middle child. He's always kind of wanting to do his own thing because he's tired of being bossed around. And so you get to really get to see that them two clash because you kind of get like, you know, the girls are together and the boys are together um, because Susan saves Lucy and then Peter saves Edmund, right? Um, so you do get also get to see how Edmund, like he wants that picture of dad despite, you know, Peter and his mom and telling him, just don't go back in the going, get in the bomb shelter, don't go back inside. And then when he, you know, breaks that and runs inside, Peter is running after him, right? And calls him, you know, are you dumb? why'd you do that? That was so stupid of you. Um, you could have died, right? So you it, immediately you get to set up how these four characters kind of work in this world and how this war that's around them is kind of oppressing them, but they can't do much because they're children, right? When in later on in the story, when they enter into Narnia and they find out the prophecy, it's the complete opposite. Without them, you know, there would be no essentially no Narnia. um, If they weren't, if the prophecy, if there was no prophecy and they didn't end up going to Narnia, there would be no Narnia. Uh, It would all be under the control of the White Witch. And they are the ones who change the tide of the war at the end of the story. So that's how I, I, I found this opening. At first, when I first watched it many years ago, I was a little bit confused in this opening as to, you know, why World War II? Why the planes? Looking back on it now for this podcast, it makes a lot more sense to me, you know, what this opening does for the setup for the rest of the film and then also, of course, the climax. And so then after this, they, of course, they hop on the train and we get that opening title sequence. I want to hear your thoughts on this opening title uh, song because we both
2: love it. This... Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, but this entire score, every single track puts tears in my eyes. But this one, this one really hits me uh, because of just having to leave home. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, ex- I'm not 100% a homebody, but I do believe in loyalty to where you come from and whatnot. And so when they, they're forced to leave their home, they're forced to leave their mom for a relocation that'll keep them safe. And this this uh track is titled Evacuating London and uh it is it is sad. The context behind it makes this song which is beautiful very sad. Right. So they're saying their goodbyes at the train station and the score is just top-tier and and uh Harry Gregson-Williams did not have to go this hard but he did that for us. Um but let me just say when they're 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 packing and it's like not it's kind of like a montage i guess it's a yeah yeah it's a um just kind of you know regular i don't know what, what it is it, it I, i'll just call it a montage it's a traveling montage. it's a traveling montage mm-hmm. but you know it, it makes sense and that that uh ethereal voice that's the one you know oh, that yeah. part yeah i remember in theaters like my third grade just self just shut down. I was like, oh, and you know, like I got like goosebumps and just like, oh my goodness. That and then the strings come in and you know the ethereal voice continues. It it sets up like what we're about to get into. It, it sets up it sets up the emotion. Yeah. This is the most emotional song I think on the uh on the on the on the entire soundtrack with maybe the stone table being the second one. I, it could mm-hmm. be an argue argument, but the stone table is an eight minute long uh, track on the soundtrack. But context behind that is a lot different because I, th- I think that this uh, evacuating London is a more human emotion. while the stone table was more like of a biblically faith based emotion. Right, right. So, you know, we can get into that later, but really this opening train sequence, um, mm-hmm. It's really sad, especially when the mom is going to each one of the kids um, saying goodbye to Lucy. Uh, and everybody's crying. Everybody's in tears. It says bye to Susan. Try, she tries to kiss Edmund goodbye. He's just so, so cold with her. He turns away. You, you just see that that um, off-putting side of him. And then she goes to Peter and says, look after your, after your brother and sisters. He's like, I will, Mom. and um, she says, "All right, off you go." And they go, and there's a m- traveling montage, and then, bam, we hit that ethereal voice. Train goes off, and then the title hits. And right. Then, oh, I tell you what, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's not a happy moment, but yeah, it really sets up what we're about to get into.
1: Yeah, it's very kind of melancholic because you know, yeah, these kids have to travel to. I don't know. Do they know the professor? No, the they have never met okay. them what so I thought, um, but yeah, they have to travel to a new place, which is, you know, foreshadowing for what will come a little bit later when they enter Narnia. Um, but yeah, they, they have to travel into this new place and they're scared, right? And it's kind of the same emotion that they'll get when they hop into Narnia, but that fear soon becomes more like a, I guess, more of a, uh, of a loyalty and bravery than it is what they're experiencing now. But yeah, this is very much a foreshadow for what's going to happen later when they hop into Narnia. A brand new place. They have no idea where they're going. Um, they've never met this person, you know. So, so yeah, you do kind of get this, this. There's this interesting sense of, like, I don't know, I, how do I put this? It's hard to, like, wrap your head around, like, what exactly is happening in their minds, right? You know, they're having to leave their mom. They have, because there's a big war going on that da- that is a danger to them. And they're going to some random place, almost like, to them in the middle of nowhere, um, and they're dragged by a horse and buggy instead, you know, of a car. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very much like these kids are forced to travel beyond what they want to do, right? For their own safety, they have to go somewhere. Um, only to
3: find that it's just going to be another war there in Narnia as well. So, this beginning is obviously very good. But one of the things I know is that its montage is very early two thousand, early 1990s Disney montage type thing. You have your helicopter shots. They're pretty broad shots, and they kind of flow like an early Disney movie. But as we've said before, it's a completely different setting for Disney in a way that's a little bit beyond, not their scope, but a little bit beyond the violence kind of. It's just a little bit curious on Disney still... Kind of sticking their leg in the door, even though a lot of this doesn't feel like early Disney. That's just one thing I noticed.
1: Yeah. And to be fair, at this time, you know, 9 11 was not too far behind. um, And so we were already kind of in a war with uh, with Iran and Iraq at this time. So even that sense of war um, and things changing, right, that was already very fresh in America's minds, right? So that's also something to keep in mind here. Is that, you know, there was a terrorist attack not too long before this movie. That I would say this movie does kind of harken on some of those themes as well. Um, Some of the same, uh, I guess, thoughts around that time with the war and stuff like that, you know. Obviously, this is taking place in, you know, World War II, but current events, I would say, still play a very heavy role in this film. So let's go ahead and talk with Lucy when she enters Narnia. Uh, you know, kind of leading up to this, where it's kind of clear to us that Edmund, you know, is not exactly the most uh, you know, rule abiding of the of the siblings, I suppose um, he's kind of always picking on Lucy, and Lucy ends up going to the wardrobe by accident um, when they're playing a game of hide and seek and here she meets Mr. Tumnus so, first impressions of Narnia, like, right, we first enter Narnia and it's a snow-covered a forest that she enters with this random blank post like right in the middle of this clearing. Um What are your thoughts? What are you guys' thoughts when if you remember what your thoughts were when Lucy, when you first see Narnia, when Lucy enters Narnia, what are your guys' thoughts on this?
2: Well, or, let, me actually, let me actually go back a little bit, like about 30 to, seconds to a minute when they're playing hide and seek and they're running around and the Oh Johnny, oh Johnny, oh, how you can oh, love oh, was oh, like yeah. playing, you know? um The part where Lucy like opens the door to the spare room and the music just like like delay echoes out oh that also gives me the chills yeah like you know y- you can be you know a child experiencing it for the first time you can be an adult and it's still gonna hit you I think the same way like oh my goodness um because it sets us up like she just opened the door to the entrance to what's going to change everything. Yeah. essentially so bam that music like cuts there with that echo like that with all that in mind i my body just i i keep saying this it just shuts down for a second mm-hmm. but you know lucy goes in there to hide she keeps going back you can see on her face like oh my gosh this thing is not ending and then boom she hits a snow-covered pine branch and she goes <gasps> you know and she goes in and actually what we see from uh, Lucy, which I think her name is uh, George, Georgia Henley. I think so, Georgia so, yeah. Henley or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. She um, – her reaction, it was actually genuine. She had never seen, like, uh, the wilderness set that they had or wherever they were at on location, I think. Um, she had not yet seen it. She was blindfolded. So that reaction was, like, a genuine reaction. So they captured that. I – always thought that this side of Narnia was beautiful yes winter represents like the turmoil that Narnia is in under the false rain and whatnot but it's still beautiful yeah and I'd like to kind of touch up on that why do you think it's beautiful that's a good
1: question because like you said it's it's under the false rain right it's been this way for a hundred years but it's like it's kind of something like um it's something that was once beautiful and even though it's Essentially, all dead aside from the trees that you know are what are built to surpass this. Those being the pine the pine trees, it's still very beautiful nonetheless, right? Even mm-hmm. under a false rain, you know it's still going to it's still going to live and prosper despite all of that. And of course, Aslan is going to be the one who comes back and really you know puts the rain back into the way that it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. I would say, and we can talk about this in a second, but the sets of this movie are, they're all really gorgeous, right? Mm-hmm, there is clearly a lot of money being spent on these sets. Yes. Um, and of course, right here in this opening, when she, when Lucy first enters it, I think really shows, you know, how dedicated Disney was to making these sets, which again, for Disney is nothing new, right? They are always, you know, going all out for their movies, especially ones that they have a lot of trust in, like something like this, right? So, yeah, yeah. Why is why is Narnia still beautiful despite it being covered in snow? Because Narnia itself is just as beautiful without it, um, and is at this time especially now. It's about the time where uh, the prophecy is going to come true. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, let's talk about the music behind the uh, yeah. Lucy exploring it for the very first time when she comes up to the lamppost right before she meets Mister Tumnus. We've got like an alto flute, pan flute type of action going, and that. I applaud the sound designers and, um, the composers, the music arrangers, all of them, anybody in the music department for coming to the consensus that, yes, this is the instrument we need because it gives off that woodland vibe like that, um, that foresty, uh, mythical vibe, man, it is beautiful. And, uh, so she's moving. And, um, I believe this during this time, this is, uh, from the western woods to the beaver dam, like the begin or the no, 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 it's Lucy mis- meets Mr. Tumnus. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I should have known that. That was dumb on my part. Um, Lucy meets Mr. Tumnus, and you've got that pan flute going, and it just sets up the atmosphere, it it, it complements it well. And then obviously, like those those uh intense strings rise, rise, rise. Then, uh, because you hear you hear the scuffling in the in the tree line because it's Mr. Tumnus. And um, then they meet, right? Yeah, it's that's kind of one of the things that I've noticed about the music, especially here in this opening. It's
1: very mysterious, right? It's mysterious to a point where, uh, you know, Narnia itself, especially now, and this will change later on when spring comes. But Narnia itself is, you know, there aren't a lot of other animals around. I think in this opening, we are only m- we only meet about a handful of different uh, like th- of different villagers who live in Narnia uh, Mr. Tumnus is first. We've got the beavers. We've got, uh, I forget his name, but the wolf that reigns underneath the white witch. Margrim. Yes. And of course the white witch and her minions. So there's only like a handful of, of different, you know, civilians within Narnia. And then of course, once spring comes, then we meet a whole bunch more. Um, mostly because now we finally get to Aslan's camp and, you know, everyone's there and, uh, and that camp. And of course
2: the white witch's camp. You think because they're in hiding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people are being taken in, uh, and because the trees are on her side, there are spies that are taking in anybody that's on Aslan's side. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so we, we immediately, especially when, um, and we, got, we also get to see this with the character of Mr. Tum- Mr. Tumnus, you know, there's like, even though this is a mysterious world, you know, where is everybody, right? And we only meet Mr. Tumnus by, co- by complete coincidence, and we get to hear from him who, that, you know, it's the wicked, or not the wicked witch, but the white witch who's kind of instilled this fear into all these people, all the people who live in Narnia, right, to a point where, you know, he knows that even so much as seeing a daughter of Eve or a son of Adam without reporting it could die because of that, right? And he almost does it. He puts, you know, Lucy into a trance and almost turns her in, but then decides at the last minute not to do it of the goodness of his own heart even though he feels bad, right? It's that fear that's been instilled on this land of Narnia, um, which also transposes back into our characters because they're in a very mysterious world, right? That the wit- the White Witch has done this, you know, she's instilled this fear after reigning for 100 years and nothing really has been happening for those 100 years because she's, you know, she's assumed complete control over it. Um, you do get this sense of like my- mystery, but also fear at the same time from all of its residents.
2: We're going to talk about, James McAvoy's performance. Yeah, yeah, James McAvoy is his first first time I ever seen James McAvoy on yeah, screen.
1: Yeah. I know him. I think people mostly know him now from being the main character or a the main villain of Split. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, he played Mr. Tumnus first. I didn't realize. I forgot um that he had played this until uh he showed up and I was like, "Oh, that's right. Mr. Tumnus is uh played by James McAvoy."
2: Yeah, he does a great job. I really like mm-hmm. his performance. Um the he plays a perfectly good superstitious fawn. It they the, uh, he and Lucy hit it off immediately. They go to his house and um then he uh, well, I want to touch up on why uh, more of his character development goes with when Lucy pulls up a picture of his father on the night stand or on the on the coffee table or something she says. You, um he has a nice face. You look a lot I feel like uh, awfully a lot like him mm-hmm. and Thomas says you know to him not really to himself but in within earshot says you know timidly no no I'm not really like him at all actually this yeah. goes to show that her fought, his father was probably you know he fought in the war so he was probably brave and I think he's feeling guilty thinking no I'm not a lot like him at all we can see okay he's timid superstitious he's a coward probably. Because you see that coward come out, he doesn't fall through with you know bringing Lucy to actually. No, I'd say that's more of a bold a bold thing to do. Um, but yeah, Mr. Tumnus, like James McFoy, he sells that, and um, I enjoy watching his, him progress to the point where he plays Narnia, a Narnia lullaby, which, yeah, is another. I'm I'm just gonna say it now. I'm, I love every single track on the soundtrack, so it's it's beautiful and it's genius because. Um, the instrument itself is a two uh, toned instrument. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, and as you're playing it, you know, have uh, st- uh, the two necks, I guess, that comes out, not the necks, uh, the two shafts that come out, I guess. Um, and um, you play it, and you have one note that just stays monotone while the other has like the moving melody. And that's a genius um, concept for an instrument, I think. Yeah. I think it's really cool.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the things too is pushing this scene where I notice like they're using instruments that you not you don't usually hear mm-hmm. right um, now. Whether or not they actually use that instrument that he plays um, for, as an I, as part of this uh, actual recording for the score, I would say I doubt it.
2: Well, um, it, you you can't have two passages of air going right. to two different things to have one play a, uh, a monotone note while the others play. I don't know if you can actually. I don't right. want to say you can't, because um, I may be a musician and composer, but I don't know. Um, I don't know the mechanics behind woodwind instruments super well, but I just feel like that's near impossible. And to make a sound as good as they did, right? Obviously, so it's all it's all sound edited. It's all sound creation, and I'd say it's too. Um, two pan flutes once again. Right. Or or some kind of woodwind instrument that they, you know, put together, but it's beautiful nonetheless. Yeah. And, um, it knocks Lucy out. She's nodding off, looking at the fire and, uh, Aslan projects into the fire and Mr. Thomas realizes what he's doing. Right. Yeah. And we find out like
1: shortly after that, um, like the next shot that he, his plan was to turn her into the white witch, but, uh, he had kind of a realization from the apparition of Aslan coming from the fire not to, right? Um, and so he, that's when he has Lucy, he uh, shows Lucy back to the lamppost and has her escape. Now, this won't be the first time, um, or this won't be the reason why he and his house later, it gets trashed and he gets taken and taken prisoner. Um, that's because of Edmund's fault. When Edmund comes into the picture next, uh, the next time around, uh you know, we do get to. He does kind of give away, you know, what Lucy had told him, kind of by accident. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's kind of his fault that a lot of the things that happen to the Sea Pef- the children um, do right. It's it's partly his fault, partly because he was drugged in by the White Witch, and then um, also because he is again the youngest of the th- of the four of them, and feels as if he's like the lowest of all of them, right? And so he feels like, well, now I'm given this sense of power with when I'm with the white witch, right? Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's, he's able to turn against them in some ways.
2: It's literally like temptation. Yeah, yeah it is. It's um, false hopes that the white witch, who is a deceiver, like Satan, mm-hmm. does in reality to each and every one of us. Right. Tempting when, us with a better sense of reality, right. which is sinful which is interesting too because the first
1: time you meet the white witch is when she runs in or edmund runs into her right that's the first time you meet her so it's kind of I, I i don't know it's kind of hard to say if we know who she is immediately from the beginning um but of course we find out later who she really is but you're, you're right the first thing she does is she convinces edmund to be on her side right mm-hmm. and she says i can give you anything that you want so long as you bring me your siblings, right? Like she shows him, I have. She has like this magic potion um, that can make a hot cup of. Uh, I don't know what it was it's exactly hot chocolate. What it is. I believe hot chocolate. Okay, yeah. And if she asks him, what do you want? Like, what do you want to eat? And he says Turkish delight, and there's Turkish delight automatically for him, right? So immediately uh, he's given this sense of power because she's wanting him to bring his siblings to her, right? And he thinks that he can do that. Um, while also showing, you know, that she will give him anything that she wants so long as he follows her, and we find out a little bit later that when he fails to bring her the siblings, she immediately turns against him and throws him in jail. So you're right; she between her relationship with Edmund is very much on the te- on the side of temptation, where she was promising him, "I will give you all of this as long as you follow me," and when he doesn't follow through with that. She doesn't. She's not very sympathetic. She's the complete opposite. Can I just say
2: that uh, Tilda Swinton knocks this out of the park?
1: Yeah, I mean she's There's a very no better.
2: There is no better actress, I think, that could have pulled this off. She's a very talented actress,
1: especially now with more recent movies that she's been in. I'm, I've been impressed by her, even though Corbin and I weren't too big of fans on Suspiria. I, I remember, I do remember praising her
2: acting mm-hmm. for in that movie. Yeah, no, she. she uh, she can make your nerves very unsettled. Mm -hmm. She knows how to, uh, it's just her facial expression Cause she can have, uh, she doesn't have like really any emotion. You can barely see any emotion in her face. It is stone cold throughout like the entire movie, even when she's mad. Um, like when she yells, when she's, when she smacks Edmund and like kind of aims him towards like, this is what happens to people who betray me and all that kind of stuff. She's stone cold. Even when she's killing Aslan, like it is, it is a stone cold face. She is just, man, I don't know how to yeah. explain it. She's unsettling.
1: Yeah. She's unsettling. And for me, unforgettable because yes. I don't know if anybody else who would have been able to play the white witch to a degree like Toto Swinton, because Toto Swinton, she has like she her demeanor in this film really gives off that she is the villain of this film. Right. And so, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't know if anybody else, and again, this very well could just be nostalgia talking. I would very much, I, you know, would not be surprised, but I don't know if I would, if I could see anybody else taking the same role um, I and, t- and pulling it off.
2: Well, the thing is, I, I feel like any other actresses that came in would try to add like that really sweet side that she first comes off as, like as a more like more soft, but even, even when Tilda Swinton as the white witch is like trying to be soft with Edmund and like course in, she is still very unsettling. Yeah. And she's because she, she asks him where he's from and who he is. And once she makes that realization, she becomes like, Edmund, you're so cold. Come and sit with me. And then you have that shot like over the shoulder where she, she turns around and the music kind of goes like or something like that. Cause yeah. she, she's like, Oh my gosh. Okay. I got to do something about this now. Cause the prophecy, Um, because it's going through her head, it all works out. She plays it off perfectly.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I do kind of want to, uh, I guess now that we're talking about Edmund and like his struggles throughout this film, right? He's struggling with, you know, obviously, well, as we've already talked about, his character, he feels like he's below his four siblings, right? Um, and so he's very easily tempted by the white witch. Right. And so that kind of becomes his big character growing moment is for him to break away from that temptation that the White Witch brings him. Right. So obviously the four other characters, while they symbolize, you know, different aspects of it, they all have their own battles that they have to go through. I think most notably is Peter because Peter, he's meant to be like the leader, right? He's already built up the opening scene, as I mentioned, to kind of be the leader of the four of them. He's kind of like the surrogate, or I guess not surrogate father, but like the father figure almost of the household, Mm -hmm. right? Because as they do, as we find out through Edmund, something happened to his dad, either he went to war and died, father was not around, right? So we do get to see how Peter he's he has to learn what it means to become a real leader because once Aslan dies he's the one leading them into battle, right? He has to be the one who to fulfill the prophecy partially, but also for his own character he has to learn what it means to be a leader. And part of that comes when he's facing I forget his name but the wolf guy. Um Margrim. Yeah, Magrum. When when they first face off, it's the they're on a bunch of ice Next to a waterfall that's about to collapse, right? Mm-hmm. And they almost fight there, but Peter decides to run away instead of fighting um, at that instance. And not too long after that, he has he is forced to fight Ma- Malgrim. Yeah, yeah, he's forced to fight Malgrim, um and he and he ends up winning, of course. Mm-hmm. So that's just like part of the st- some of the steps of him getting the tools now to become a leader. You know, reaching that step where he knows what his calling is. And
2: fully fulfilling that with the ending of the climax, and right. we can we can build on that character development with a scene prior. Like right as Edmund comes out, and because um, Lucy and Edmund find each other in Narnia right after yeah. the White Witch leaves, Edmund with his task to bring his siblings. Um, you know, right on cue, Lucy comes out. She's like, "Edmund, you got gotten too, isn't it wonderful?" And all that kind of stuff. So they they leave, and um, they. They go. They wake up Susan and Peter. Well, Lucy does, and she tries to explain. Like Edmund went there too, and they look at Edmund, and he and he's like, "I was only playing along." Yeah. Like, which I I wonder why he says that because if he's tasked to go, bring them to the White Witch. Well, I well, I, I, I think
3: he's trying to fit in with the older crowd with yes, Susan and Peter very. because that's where he sees himself to be. But then when he's all alone, obviously he's gonna be who. He wants... Not who he wants to be. Who he wants to be, not who he needs to be. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's...
1: I see, you know, his... I I do agree with you. I think part of it is, you know, why would he say that if he wants to get them to come to Narnia? Um, But I think
2: to Andrew's point... battle of acceptance again.
1: yeah, Yeah, and to Andrew's point, too, you know he he's kind of given this into power he feels more powerful over lucy Mm -hmm. um who is kind of the baby of the family yeah um when they ask him you know is this is this true you know and he has the he has a chance to do so um and to tell him the truth or to just you know completely lie and say no she's actually
2: just you know messing around she's her imagination again right and so whatever he you know thought was going to happen it probably backfires in his face because you know you know, Peter and Susan like roll their eyes once Lucy runs away crying and he sh- right. and Peter shoves them into the bed, you know, and takes off after Lucy. And then uh, this next scene is pretty important because we first see the professor for the very first time. Yeah. And uh, let's touch on the professor really quick.
1: Yeah. So I think he we, have, we talked about this, the three of us. We talked about this before the podcast. Uh, he we find out we kind of find out here. Uh, we find out it's pretty much told to us later on. He's been to the the wardrobe before. Yeah, right.
2: He his name is Diggory Didgery Kirk. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Diggory Kirk from the Magician's Nephew. Right. He he has been to Narnia before. Right. He's now like a seventy year old man, but back in his boyhood, he has been called to Narnia before. Now, I don't think the professor is actually related to the kids. No, I don't
1: think I've, so. I've I've
2: actually realized that. Since his house is so massive, he understands what's going on with war, and they have opened up the house to um, relocated kids for their safety. I, growing up for the longest time, thought, oh, okay, this is like all one big family. Like this family is being tied into Narnia. That's not the case, right? It is who is being called in Narnia. It doesn't matter if they're blood relative or not, but they are going to get to Narnia regardless. So he has been to Narnia, and you know, sixty years later he's been trying to get back in but his time has been fulfilled right or so if he thinks i believe he goes back in the last battle if i remember correctly but his time has been fulfilled so when he hears when he's having that private meeting with lucy and peter in the middle of the night he's in his study and whatnot and they're like and peter says she believes she's found a magical land in the wardrobe either he says that or susan and he immediately like perks up he's like what was it like and they're like you don't say you actually believe her he's like why not? And then blah, 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 blah. And he says uh, this, this very important line that will stick with both of these kids. She's your sister, isn't she? Your family. And you might, you might as well try acting like one. Right. Another thing that hits Peter and something that will build their character throughout the film.
1: Right. And that's also another big, you know, theme of this movie is that theme of family, right? Uh, I mean, I think that's, you know, relatively obvious. The four, you know, while they're not being watched over by their mother and father... Um, they are still a family. And as the professor mentions, they still need to, they also need to still act like a family. And so with that, you know, with kind of, I guess, Peter being somewhat of the father figure and Susie being somewhat of the mother figure. Um, having to you know parent the other two kids and also you know somewhat parent each other, um, you know it's interesting that you know they also still have this family dynamic there, right? They have to stay together, and when Edmund's gone for a good chunk of the time that they're in Narnia, there is just that missing piece to the family, right? And they all they all feel like there's just something missing, something that's totally just not right when it comes to when it comes to us, right? Where is Edmund? Why is he gone? That kind of a thing. So there is of course still those familiar themes in this as well
2: right well let's let's just jump right into narnia yes they they're playing outside they need the fresh air the comedic relief is great i love the comedic relief and the dynamic between the the, the, the kids yeah uh, when they try to be uh when they try to be a happy family like obviously edmund always is sour and whatnot and peter will poke fun at him they knock well edmund knocks a baseball through a window knocks over uh some relics and they go into hiding because the McCready, the sir, or the uh, I think the house head, I guess I don't know who she is. Um, yeah,
1: she's kind of like a like a secretary, uh, yeah. maid kind of to the professor,
2: right? Yeah. She she uh, She's coming after them, so they they run, they're in hiding. And let me tell you something, I we had the video game growing up for GameCube, this was a huge level, this was an intense level. Like, you had the McCready head, uh, the top center of the screen and it was a countdown. You had to find a place to hide. You had to break boxes to get down a hallway. I loved it. And I'm just, I wanted to throw that out there. And if anybody's listening to this podcast and has played this, uh, yeah, um, I'm with you. I, I've, I've been there and I understand like the intensity behind it, but um, they get into the wardrobe and this is their calling into Narnia. They have found their way now into Narnia. And um, let's actually talk about uh, their reaction together for the first time yeah
1: and and it be, right before that too it's it's kind of you know fitting that it's partially the younger kids who lead them into narnia right oh yeah lucy was the one who kind of you know was trying to convince them to get in and mm-hmm. to like or to kind of trying to convince them that it was real of course they didn't believe her and then edmund was the one who was like well come on are you coming in um which we know he's also partially trying to get them to the white witch
2: yep and susan's like you've got to be joking but they have no options there's nowhere to go they're in a dead end exactly so they go in
1: they hide and of course, the older kids are like, "Well, I guess sorry isn't exactly going to cut it, is it?" Uh, and so they have a little bit of fun of it. Of course, you know Edmund is kind of the odd one out here in the situation. Um, but I think this this scene too, this also shows like how beautiful some of the sets or and some of the, the filming locations can be, um, because you have this shot. I forget if it's with the beavers or not, but they're walking across like this, almost like this natural bridge. Right, mm-hmm. of, of these two rocks. Um, and it's this really vast, uh, snow ridden like mountain and forest. Oh, yeah. This
2: is after Edmund like takes off with the White Witch and there. That's right. Yeah. They, they can see, uh, Carapara over the, um, over the, like, the frozen lake. Yeah. And whatnot. And that's when Peter says, it's so, uh, it's so large or so far away or something like that. And then Mr. Beaver's like, it's the world. dear. Did you expect it to be small? And yeah. And then it's a smaller, which I want to elaborate on. I'm trying to figure out why she says that and whatnot, but regardless. Yes. It is beautiful. It yeah. is absolutely beautiful.
1: Yeah. I'd say this is when all of them get into Narnia. This is where the, the movie really shows off uh, a lot of Narnia. Right. And this is where I think, most of my, uh, rem- I guess most of my joy when it comes to showing off Narnia comes from, because they do show off a lot of a lot of Narnia, right? And it makes it, they make it feel like it's a real magical place, um, re- rather it's just, you know, a bunch of sets, which it I mean, pretty clearly is a bunch of sets and green screens and whatnot. So they do a very good job at showing off, like, you know, this magical place, even though it's still kind of dead and snow covered and there's not many, very many animals or anything, any creatures around you get this sense that this place has very much been lived in and that the era that these kids walk into is an era of darkness, right? You get that pretty clearly without the, without it, before it even tells you if we finally are given some exposition by the beavers who tell us, well, this is the prophecy, right? You are this, we've been under this spell for a hundred years and you're the ones who have come to break this. Like you're, you're the prophecy, you know, um, <laughs> where's the where's the fourth one of you guys. Right? So you do get the sense that up until this point, it's kind of this weird, mysterious land, because in most fantasies it would be more populated. It wouldn't be so dead and so dark all the time. Um, and when we find out from the beavers, you know, the reason why is because of the witch, the witch that Edmund has run off, uh and is trying to, you know, lead these characters to her, right? That's that's where we find out that oh well the white the white I keep wanting to say the wicked witch. The white witch uh, is somebody who is, you know, of course, going against what Edmund should be doing.
2: I like to think Edmund is Judas almost. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. I way wrote to put that down, yeah. like Edmund is just like Judas. Mm-hmm. Uh he's coerced um by reward mm-hmm. to get uh to betray his family and well, like Judas betrayed Jesus for a certain amount of gold and whatnot. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. I
1: think that that's definitely what they're going for with his character and where he goes. He's definitely playing a more Judas like role. Although it doesn't end with him, you know, hanging himself. Hanging himself. Yeah, he, right. there's like a redemption for the character of Judas yes. here.
2: Well, and that redemption shows off in the color at the end of his cape. Yeah. Which Andrew can, but, uh, uh-huh. yeah. After after 30 minutes, there's Andrew again. <laughs> um, but let, let me just say, uh, We've, we've talked about the beavers, like, briefly, but, like, yes, they, they're introduced to the beavers. They go to the the beaver dam. The Edmund, once, once again, like, he betrays them. He leaves from the beaver's dam, and the beavers are like, tell him the prophecy. And it's like, has Edmund ever been to Narnia before when they realize it's gone? Mm-hmm. They look over the frozen lake to where the White Witch's castle is, and they see Edmund walking into the castle. And right. they want to go get him, but they can't. Um, and then Edmund gives away their position. Let me, let me just say this movie really quickly has jump scares, but they're effective. Yeah. There is a few
1: of them. Yeah. There's, there's a few jump scares. They're not, I guess, jump scares in the traditional sense. No, but they're there. They are definitely, they
2: work. Yeah. They, they seriously work. The first one that I can recall is when Edmund is walking through like the corridor of the white witch's castle and he's looking at all the stone statues, you know, he draws the mustache and glasses on that one and then keeps moving, steps over Margrim, which looks like, a, a, um, a stone wolf. Actually, you know, he just moves and pounces on Edmund like that in theaters, like gave me a heart attack. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, he goes and he sits on the throne. There's uh, the White Witch, and they talk. And she sits back on her throne while Edmund sits there. And then she says something along the lines like, "Is your brother deaf? Or no? Is, are your sisters deaf?" Edmund's like, "No." He's like, "And your brother? Is she? Un- is he unintelligent?" And Edmund starts to kind of joke around with her, saying like, "Well, I think so." Blah, blah blah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she just screams. And then, "How dare you come along like that?" That also can cause like a massive jump scare. Like, it, yeah. and it works so well. Like, yeah. These are times where like jump scares actually work for me. Yeah, and it's and we
1: do get here we see, you know, that uh, what exactly the white witch, you know, what what exactly her plans are.
2: Like this right? is like like her intentions, like her personality like, "Oh man, okay, she's she's scary."
1: Yeah, she's scary. And we see like I mentioned a second ago when Edmund fails to give to her uh what she had asked for, how quickly she's willing to turn on him. Oh yeah. Right? Yes. And so after this she locks him up and she locks him up with Mr. Tumness, right? Um uh, which is kind of funny. Uh and Mr. Tumness he even uh no no sorry, uh, Miss it was Edmund who does try to like protect Mr. Tumness too when when the witch comes in and is talking to him like
2: where are your siblings now. However, he he gives away the position of his uh family yeah. then he does then they, like that's more uh drastic than just saving a stranger. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's, you do get to see, and of course, Mr. Timnus is dragged out of there in that same scene.
2: Um, by big man. By,
1: by, by a big man. Yeah,
2: that, that orc or ogre comes in and we're all like, big man, yeah. big man. Damn, big man. Yeah. But it's all practical. I love the costumes in this movie. Yeah. I really and, do.
1: Well, let's go ahead and talk about some of the special effects in here. There is some CGI. Obviously, uh, Aslan for the most part is mostly CGI. Uh, Mr. Tumnus, his bottom half is oftentimes CGI. If there's like a close-up, it might not be. Um, but they do a really good job uh, seamlessly putting together uh, what is and is not CGI. Now, by today's standards, you can definitely tell what is and is not. But I, I still think it stands the test of time. It does still stand up rather well, all things considered. Um, there are still some interesting choices when it comes to cgi um, um like you can tell what is and is not obviously but you are correct uh they do a rather good job at uh you know making what cgi they did use is still something that still looks good even by today's standards while you can still tell what it is it doesn't look like it's it doesn't look bad from like a 2005 perspective
2: right and they also use a lot of green screens at times, oh, but they have word. to. Yeah, let's talk about that so we can get into talking here. Uh, there I'll, are yeah, will let of moments, cover this.
1: There are a couple of moments that the matting is uh, not great in this movie, and I'm guessing part of it is well, that's definitely because of the Blu-ray quality here.
3: Yeah, uh, sometimes when it becomes more high-def, people can notice where the imperfections are. Whereas a lot of the times, the first thing you could get it on was standard definition. So right. obviously um, some of the lighting between our characters and our green screen is a little bit off. You can see some, we tried to figure it out uh, when they were walking away from the stone table before it cracks, there was the blue outline. Yeah. Even though they were wearing like a blue, blue outline, clothes. like a blue haze, a blue haze, street, something Lucy. along the lines. Even though Lucy was wearing like a light blue tunic, it was a little weird. Um, most of it's just like the dynamics of lighting is just a little bit off when they have a green screen. Uh, a lot of their faces kind of look flat. I mean, this doesn't this doesn't happen every time, but like for some of the bigger shots, some of the wider shots. A little bit of the close but most of the wider shots just the lighting is just a little bit off. It that makes their face look flat. And yeah. then the background is just either like a little bit darker. So it just kinda like obviously you can tell it's there. And then our F stop for whatever reason, which is our aperture, which shows how, how much is in focus. So like a large aperture means that there's gonna be a lot of stuff that's in focus. And they have they're really weird on it at some points with the green screen. So it's yeah. either like you can see where they were trying to blur it. And then it gets like not blur again, but I, you say blur it's more bokeh, but it's just a little bit off at times. Yeah. I know. But that, then again, it is this 2005 era, which obviously it's like the CGI is beautiful on those green screens. It's just the technical side of getting it to the, gr- getting it to match the green screen. is just a little bit off and every once in a while.
1: Yeah. And I know that it's not as bad when it gets to the spring section of the movie, um but in uh, when they oh it's i definitely could tell with the older kids well like,
3: i can under i can understand yeah the that's under, where i
1: saw it most is when i can see like either mm-hmm. the comp the composite of loose uh, not lucy but susan's hair against what looks to clearly be a <laughs> green screen or a blue screen behind her yep. is not great sometimes the arrows also kind of bleed into each other you have that outline that that matting outline that kind of bleeds in
3: doesn't doesn't catch everything.
1: Yeah, it's it's very much a something that we noticed again could just be because of the Blu-ray quality that we're seeing this on. Uh, it's something that I unfortunately know unfortunately had noticed. Which you well, know the
3: thinking. the one thing to note is that during the winter time it was always pretty much cloudy, and when it's cloudy, it separates all that light and pretty much makes it kind of balanced lighting wise. So and that's what they were going for was some equally lighting like if it was just a close up and they were they would just equally light the light cuz that's what it would do when in cloudy time but then to get that background going just right it's the lighting's just a tad bit off right yeah exactly yeah it's again
1: the in some ways this movie still does stand the test of time but in other ways
3: not so much i think it very much does uh, a lot of the cgi is really good. It's yeah, a lot. I mean, most of it's practical, which I always enjoy practical over CGI. But then the CGI that they did have, like Aslan in 2005, is beautiful. Yeah, for- and some shots. The one shot between him and Peter when they're up on the uh, the hill. Oh, yeah. right, right before the wolves attack. Yeah, Aslan looks beautiful backlit.
2: That's, it literally took 10 hours per frame to render him. Well, yeah. In 2005, they didn't have the, the beef they did. Yeah, but true. they were still doing stuff like this. So just the rendering just took forever. I yeah. mean, didn't it take like, because we're going back to the 90s here, like 400 hours for the dog in Toy Story? <gasps> something like that. It was something stupid like oh, that. 400, 400 hours. And well, you see again, how atrocious
3: that thing is? Well, then again, that was that was back when they were just figuring out how to get characters to look like Vegeta characters because they were still back behind VeggieTales back then that's yeah. very
2: true
1: yeah at the time VeggieTales tales was the only like mass produced uh animation like, series for animation yeah
3: but they mm-hmm. didn't have arms and stuff no that's is, where pixar yeah. that's where pixar took off but yeah. yeah
1: yeah but okay so i do kind of want to skip ahead um i want to skip ahead to the father christmas scene
2: ah uh, yes um, i have a lot to talk about here
1: yeah they believe they're being chased by the witch um come to find out that's not the case. Uh, it's actually Father Christmas and he has gifts for them, you know. As I mentioned in the plot summary, uh Lucy gets a bow and arrow. Uh oh, sorry, nope. not Lucy, Susan gets the bow and arrow. Lucy gets the potion and the dagger, and then Peter gets the sword and shield, right? Oh of course, they kind of align with, you know, what their their character and their character traits, right? Lucy uh is very much a caretaker, um, rather than she rather than a fighter. So she gets the healing potion and a dagger. And uh and Susan, who is more logical and thinking and is smart, gets the bow and arrow. And of course, uh, man, these names. <laughs> Peter, And of course, Peter, being the leader of the group, he gets the sword and shield, right? And Edmund is gone. I, if I remember right, he does, Father Christmas does bring that up, right? Um, but those are the gifts that these characters get, right? They're, they very much match their own character personality and what they will grow to eventually become
2: by the end of the film. And people might think like, "What on earth is Santa Claus doing here? And why is he coming at this convenient time?" Yep. This movie sucks. Blah 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 blah. No, actually, I because growing up, I was I always thought like, "Is this just like a weird, lazy way for them to get like their weapons or something or their purpose?" I I, growing up, I never understood why. Well, he's called Father Christmas so that both um, American children and British children could uh, relate to a Santa Claus like figure. They just figured out, oh, this is like Santa Claus. But you think, like, why is this fictional character like in this fictional world? Like, what's happening here? Well, I've actually real. I came to the realization that um, that Father Christmas symbolizes the benevolence and bounty that Christianity has to offer. Yeah. And because of that, these kids get the gifts that like what God gives us, the gifts that we get uh, to use to overcome the sin in the world, essentially. And which is in this case, the white witch in Narnia. But like you said, Lucy gets the dagger and the healing potion. You said that Susan gets the bow and the arrows and the horn. And I think the horn symbolizes something along the lines of how we can call on the, uh, the name of the Lord, whenever we're in trouble and he is always there for us he's always you know uh he just he's always there for us and right. then peter gets the sword I believe it's called rindon r-h-i-n-d-o-n mm-hmm. in the book it's called rindon and uh you know it's kind of like the word of god and the any that's sharper than a double-edged sword um so he gets the sword and the shield like almost like i don't know maybe the armor of god i don't know if that's not as deep as, or like, if that's not exactly what C.S. Lewis meant, you know, I can't really ask him, but uh, I I think that these are all biblical symbols. Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things about this movie is, we mentioned it a second ago, uh, this is very heavy on biblical themes, right? Oh, yeah. And I would say that, uh, as you were talking about, this is, you know, one of those moments, you know, uh, where, you know, Peter gets the sword and shield, right? Whether it be a symbolic uh, link to the armor of God, or if uh, it's something completely different. Either way, I think it's hard, uh, just in general for this movie, it's hard to walk through this movie, at least for me, and not see these biblical themes, especially with the character of Aslan, right? It's pretty clear that with Aslan, when uh, he sacrifices himself for Edmund and then comes back later that night, it's, uh, I'd say it's hard to see, it's hard for me to look past that as a very, as a symbol of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, right. right? That's pretty, pretty obvious. And of course, knowing who C.S. Lewis actually is, that is what he was going for in the first place, right? That's his whole goal with this story is to bring in biblical themes, but tell it in a more Lord of the Rings style uh, of of a story, right? Um, so yeah, It's it's kind of hard to look past this movie without mentioning these biblical themes. One being Aslan, the gifts being those the tools that you know are given to our main characters to fulfill what their plan is, right? So, yeah, what other things, Tommy? Did you see that you would like to mention that are kind of in the same camp? Because there's a lot of things here of Christianity, of like of of symbolic links to Christianity in the story. It would be the Christ narrative or Bible or pieces of the Bible or
2: whatever. Well, I mean. Yes, you just hit like with uh, how they 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 discuss. Well, for okay, let's. I'm I'm thinking you you bring this to me now. All of a sudden, I think of every single one, and my brain wants to say every single one at the same time. Mm. Um, and then when I want to say something like one prior to that comes in. Well, let's talk about when um, how the Lord is always there for us. Yet he lets us, lets us fight our earthly battles. Right. This shows up when Peter has to. Face Morgum when they're uh, when he's about to kill his sisters, because Aslan shows up with his army, puts his paw down on the uh, on the excess danger, and says, "Now hang on, this is Peter's battle." And they watch what happens, and sure enough, Peter kills Captain of the Guards Morgram. Yeah, and um, then Aslan goes on to knight Peter as Knight of Narnia. Well, that just goes to show one right there. God will let us fight, us, fight our own battles, but he's never going to forsake us or leave us. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's one big thing. Another thing is, if we're going to skip ahead to when they, you know, because he lets the wolf go, they, it leads him to Edmund uh, and they bring Edmund back. So up on the hilltop, they all see Edmund. Uh, the siblings see him and they're filled with joy. Peter might be angry still. However, Aslan comes down with Edmund and says um, what's done is done. Um, There's no need to speak with Edmund about what happens. Perfect example of forgiveness and how God will forgive us and then completely disregard what that sin was because we are started anew or we are white, uh, washed white as snow, white the cape that Edmund gets at the end. We'll talk about that. Um, So the, the, uh, the idea of forgiveness that comes in there. Uh, the crucifixion, how Edmund, yes, a sinner, uh, quote unquote, he um, betrayed uh, his siblings, and all of a sudden now he's a property to sin. Mm-hmm. He deserves to die like we do when we sin. We are destined to die and we are destined for hell because we have sinned against God, we have sinned against our family, our friends. Edmund does this, he belongs to the white witch, he is supposed to die, yet. Aslan comes in and says, well, she tries reciting the deep magic to him. He was there when it was written. I love, let me actually quote that. Uh, it is right. Aha. Do not cite the deep magic with me, which I was there when it was written. And this was the dawn of time. Right. As God has been. Might be like Satan talking to Jesus or something like that, where she, uh, there are times when jesus was in the desert and satan uh, tried to coax jesus to sin against god and jesus would come back immediately with scripture right. this is kind of like that moment um, uh, as land immediately fights back with a white witch saying like don't recite this like to me i was there when it was written blah 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 blah." and then they go and discuss and they, he takes the place of edmund yeah. he takes our place like jesus took our place yeah and he goes to die not on the cross, but on the stone table. But right. these are the big ones and there are plenty more. Oh, like yeah. obviously Father Christmas and the benevolence of Christianity and the symbol- uh, symbolic, um, his symbolic character as to what Christianity is. Mm. Um, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. Yeah.
1: And it's kind of funny too, uh, I guess, funny and then also very ironic as well. Uh, we find out after Aslan dies and then he comes back, he explains to Lucy and, and Susan you know, the witch didn't actually know deep magic that well because he reads from the stone table that's written around the stone table itself as the movie shows us, you know, if somebody were to take the place of the, the traitor that was taken and that was supposed to die and took the death from them, that person, in this case Aslan, in and, and place, place of Edmund, will not be subject to death. Death will not be able to hold him, right? So it just, it also just shows, you know, despite and it's kind of funny the progression of uh of the white witch and her power how we see through Edmund she's kind of a she's very much a temptation uh, for Edmund giving him whatever she whatever he wants and when he doesn't su- when he doesn't follow her instructions and do what she asked of him then she's then she turns on him right well then we find out a little bit later that you know she has all this power but in reality she doesn't know she doesn't have that much power and she doesn't know, as much as she as much as she leads on, right, which leads to uh, which sees the Aslan being able to you know make a condition with her, knowing that you know she doesn't fully know what the dark what the deep magic rule what the what the deep magic is, right? It's ironic that at the end of the story, she you know didn't realize that if Aslan takes Edmund's place, she, you know the king Aslan will be gone and out of my out of my hair, right? Yes only for a short a short while before the deep magic, you know, the rules that are that are set forth, he will come back to life because that's he's not the one who should he's
2: not the one who should die, right? It should have been Edmund, but he took his place. Right. So it's not gonna happen. And you can also think like the the stone table will crack. Yeah. And even death itself will or turn backwards or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So Matthew 2751 says um at that moment, this is talking about the crucifixion and the moment Jesus died. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Right. The veil was torn, right? And so the earth shook and the rocks split. That's this is what C.S. Lewis meant. He he drew that from Matthew twenty seven fifty one. Right. Yeah. Check that out in the Bible. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And like I said, this movie is full of of uh, biblical references and allegories. Right. It's like like I mentioned, it's hard to watch it and not see something. That's you know a biblical reference, right? In this movie, I, again, that's what it's based around uh, the book itself. You know, so it's 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 impossible for this movie to be to have been made without these references still being inside of it. If if that were to be the case, this would be a, a completely different story. This wouldn't even be Chronicles of Narnia. It wouldn't even be something close to what CS Lewis had written down. It'd be something completely di- something completely different.
2: Right, all right,
1: all right. So, well, let's go ahead since I mean this we're kind of already here when the stone table cracks let's talk about this climactic, ba- this climactic battle. Um, because between we find out before this, before uh, Aslan comes back to life, uh, you know, Peter's going to now lead the army into battle. This is kind of like the last part of his arc um, is to lead the battle, lead the army into battle without, without Aslan there. Right.
2: right. And let's just say really quick, um, because the he learns through the trees, through a messenger. Right. And once again, we're bringing back to the trees uh Lucy knows the trees. They they can help us. And so the trees send the message. Obviously C.S. Lewis and JK Tolkien. J.R. Tolkien. Oh my goodness. I'm thinking J.K. Rowling. I'm getting mixed <laughs> up. Uh J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they had some they they really enjoyed putting trees into their literature. So what do you think it means for them? Right.
1: So I I guess my mind immediately goes to how a tree Uh, I I, how a tree produces pollen, right? A tree will produce pollen, and then the wind will take that the spores from the pollen and then spread it around. Uh, spread it around, right? So I'm kind of, I guess, seeing it something like that, right? Where a tree is usually symbolic uh, when put into a film, symbolic of either a family um, or and or one's personal growth, right? Depending on kind of how you look at it. Um, in this instance, they're the ones who are passing along a message. Right. And so, since trees, you know, already, you know, produce pollen and produce children in this, in the way that I already explained, that's how I guess I kind of see it is they're passing along the message uh, to our main
2: characters here. I guess that's one way of looking at it. It's almost like a messenger angel, like it's like another biblical, um, yeah, it's metaphor. And
3: the pink tree is a woman.
2: Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It helps
1: the cause. They're, it's the, yeah, there's kind of like an angelic sense, right? And of course, that's symbolic of later uh, when uh, Mary Magdalene and I forget her name, but they go to visit Jesus in the tomb, and there's an angel that shows up and says, "What are you doing here? He's not here," right? Mm-hmm. It's, it reminded me of that when the uh, when the trees started talking and they gave the message that you know the king is dead, right, right. So, all right, let's move on to this battle. As I mentioned a second ago, Peter, is fi- is the last part of his arc is to lead the army into battle, which he does do, uh, which kind of fulfills his character arc here in this moment. Um, so we do get to the ending of this climactic battle.
2: It's I also... want to talk about the score. All right, uh, talk about the score. I'm sorry, but this, once again, is why I absolutely love this score. All right. Where to begin? Um, we start, obviously, with uh, them looking at the map and then zooming into the map and then morphing it into the world as, an, as a helicopter shot or whatever. A giant establishing pan over the field that the battle is about to take place. And then, boom, here in comes a gargoyle. And we have those triumphant horns, um, moving strings that you know, overlay. And it's like, bum, 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 the main theme. You can't help but not like get the chills for this. You cannot help but not feel good. This is incredible because this if you listen to this score, it's like a 7-minute score on the on the soundtrack. Yeah. It it goes through many different emotions. There is that triumphant we're about to begin, let's do this to the um that intense, oh, here comes the White Witch's uh army like diga-diga-dum, then the choir like who are like kind of overseeing it as the, uh, the general comes up onto the rock and you have that, like that male choir, that the, ah, so you know, that comes in and then it slowly pans up and you just see the immensity
1: mm-hmm.
2: of just how outnumbered they are. And you hear the ha, da, ha, de, ha, Like, and then it gets, uh, you have, like, the double up on the choirs, and you just hear the roar of the army coming after them. You see the scared faces. Yeah. It all fits in perfectly, and then it gets quiet, and then as soon as the White Witch, like, kind of gives that like, commence, that higher choir goes, like, the – Um, it's, I, I don't want to, like, sing and embarrass myself because <laughs> I don't want to make it all pitchy and gross – that um, if you rewatch the scene as soon as just listen to how the score sounds as soon as the white Witch's army advances. Yeah, and listen to that higher um, the, the women now come in and listen to how it is when they're just storming across the field because they're they're the first to go the, you know uh, Aslan's army is just standing by and they're waiting. They're waiting for Peter's call and then Boom Out come The uh, gargoyles dropping the rocks like we've talked about before that all comes in and then the Peter gives the announcement like let's go. He gives the command not the announcement and they go and then it gets quiet and you hear that like the, the song on the soundtrack ends and you hear the heartbeat and it's quiet as and my favorite one of my favorite shots in the scene is that silence as the two armies clash.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of fitting too because just as you know, there a battle is about to commence on screen. There's also a battle within the music, as you have these two opposing sides of the soundtrack battling for exactly. which one's going to be the main melody here, right? Right. And of course, that just leads right into when the two armies finally clash. Which is interesting that it's
2: clashing to no music, no at all. music, and yeah. that is the best decision they could possibly ever, yeah, ever do.
3: Mm-hmm. That
2: entire as because we we ju- we were just given multiple views on this music multiple like side like perspectives and then bam we're, now we're just thrown in like we're like who do we watch what's going on it's chaotic yeah. It's and this like I had not seen Lord of the Rings yet when I first watched this movie mm-hmm. I knew of Lord of the Rings I didn't know the immensity of the battle this battle is pretty crazy and I remember being obsessed with it as a kid like this is something else like I have never experienced anything like this in a movie before. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it, this is where I think we were like how is this pretty PG? Yeah. Right, back when I was a kid. I was like because of this battle mostly, uh, I was like man, I this is I thought I was pushing it. I mean, now again, looking back on it now, it still does kind of push it, but it's also one that y- you know that it's kind of all fake. It's it's not something that's completely real. Um, It doesn't have the Lord of the Rings grittiness to it that makes it
2: PG-13, right? Right. Nobody's head's getting cut off or anything like that. Exactly.
1: It's not that intense, but it does push it a little bit. You know, I don't think I can really name any more, any other PG movies um, that have a big battle sequence like this that are a more modern uh, take. So yeah, this battle, I mean, I'm at first, I'm kind of, uh, I guess, underwhelmed because we are cutting back, like completely changing tones, and cutting back to Aslan um, as to kind of you know show you know how much um, how much power the witch has over the situation, right? And of course, Aslan comes back to life, and he brings more reinforcements from those who are from her castle. So it does kind of get back into the action. And then for a good solid chunk of time, there is action until the very end. Mm -hmm. Um, But the beginning parts of it, I've always felt were like just choppy almost because they keep going back and forth between the battle scene and what's happening with Aslan and the two two girls. But once they finally get into the action, it's a lot of fun. I mean, even today, you know, seeing it, I, you know, however many times I've seen it now um, and having more experience with movies, it is still a lot of fun to watch despite the fact that it It is is a little
2: choppy. I agree.
1: Yeah. It's still fun to watch despite the fact that it is, you know, tamed down from Lord of the Rings style of battle action scenes. All right. So as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a redemption. Like this is like, you know, the final redemption arc for the character of Edmund, right? Just a bit of context, the, the is back up into what they call the rocks. Hopefully they can ambush, you know, get a, a bit of an upper edge on them there. Um, the wicked wit, or the wicked witch. My goodness, the white witch steps out of her carriage and is walking towards, uh, towards Peter. And Edmund sees this, and he takes, and takes charge. He breaks the wand that she has. It's kind of like, again the last redemption arc for the character of Edmund. He tries to fight off for Peter, but she still has the upper hand, and Best Sim stabs him.
2: Um, I, that that scene is the reason that we couldn't watch it in third grade right. in my third grade class. We yep. had a big old Chronicles of Narnia party because this, when it came out, I was in third grade. And so it was really disappointing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you, now we do have a, a battle between uh, the White Witch and Peter. Um, looking back on it now, it's not as cool as I no. remember it being. <laughs> yeah. Um, But it is, again, given what rating we do have, I'm not super surprised by it. It is still a lot of fun, despite the fact that it's not, you know, Lord of the Rings grade of action. But yeah, regardless, regardless, this is also, I guess, more finishing up the arc of of Peter fighting off the White Witch. And then, of course, Aslan jumps in and finishes the job.
2: It just shows that um, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They would have lost
1: had not had Aslan not gone to the White Witch's castle and, uh, turn those who were turned to stone, turn them back to normal. Which is right? another biblical thing. He breathes
2: on them. Yeah. How did he, he form life man? Into. How did, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How did How did he form man from the dust? Yes, but he breathed the breath of life into him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And so we do also get. You know. Uh, we all get to see Mister Timness again. Um,
2: and he does fight a little bit in the battle at the end. <laughs> he's, yep, he, he shows that courage that we, we've we been missing. Yeah. And he, he rams a shoulder, he into runs He rams a shoulder into the guy. Yes. Exactly.
1: Yeah. That's, that's his, you know, his arc is finishing here, too. He fights in the battle and he's not as much of a coward as he was when we first met him, right? He's fighting, he's fighting his own here. Uh, maybe not exactly with the same tools as most everybody else here, but he is fighting, right? He he's finally, I guess fulfilling what emptiness he felt because of his what his father had done mm-hmm. right so anyways the battle finally ends right and now we have the throne room scene um this is where i'd say we talked about mentioning color in this scene here and there this is where i feel the color really plays a part uh, of the story like really hammers it in andrew take it away what do you think about this ending oh
3: boy Quiet boy's gonna talk. All right, so it's pretty simple, actually. As our main characters go through this movie, they change. And that's what we call character arc. Naturally, yes. Of course. So at the beginning, we're shown all their flaws, which is great for setting up character developments. Because if we're not given that many flaws, then they're just written as a perfect character. But all these characters that we know of, they all have flaws and like you talked about at the beginning, they're shown in that pairs, and they're by the time we get to uh, the cottage—not the cottage. The it's just a big house, isn't it? What? Care pair of Yeah. No. 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 The beaver. The beavers. No. The. Uh...
2: <laughs> <He's panting. laughs> what are you talking about? The, the cottage? professor's house. Oh. That, okay. that beginning. The mansion. That
3: beginning. Yeah. yeah. Once, by the time we get to the mansion, we've all been, uh, we can, for the most part, figure out our characters and where they're going to sit. But by the end of it, they're changed because of the character arc that happens in the events that they went through. And so the way that they're dressed in, they all have certain colors. And for Peter, it's gold. For Edmund, it's like a lightish blue. For Susan, I, it's either dark green or blue. Uh, either of them work for the most part. And then uh, Lucy is red. And this is where we're given our characters in their purest form, more or less, because after this, we don't see any more flaws. We just see them all grown up and stuff like that. And so Peter is called Peter the Maleficent at the end. And then King Edmund is called uh, King Edmund the Just. Susan is called Susan the Genter. And then Lucy is Lucy the Valon, Valiant. And so their capes, for the most part, are the colors that would represent them in this purest form. So for Peter it's gold, it's the prestige, it's his influence on his other people and he is the high king is what I think is his official title is I don't know which direction he is. They give him directions, right? Like north, south, east, west. Cuz uh, I know I remember Edmund I being west. I think of that book they do but they don't mention it in the in the I minute. remember in the movie I remember them specifically saying Edmund from the west or something like that. Yeah. Anyways,
2: yeah, they they give him jurisdiction. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Well then is it north for Peter? West for whatever. I guess it, that
2: would fit in again.
3: Anyways, so for Peter, the magnificent is gold. And gold is kind of like our highest color that we can say. I mean, people are like, oh, but there's platinum and there's diamond. I'm like, there's carbon fiber. There's carbon fire. Gold is one of the highest colors that we, we look towards for a lot of part. And then King Edmund, the just. So he is wearing light blue, which can transcend to wisdom wisdom or trustworth. worth with both work for now. Our character now, because trust was the biggest thing that right, was his flaws, right, yeah. and now that we're at what I say is the purest form of our four main characters, trust, trust, trust is there with him. And then Susan the genter, if if gentle, she's wearing genter, what I say, genter, you, you gender, said gender twice, nice, gentle. gentle, yeah. Susan, if she is, if it's dark green. I still can't make it out. If it's dark green, then it means harmony and safety. And both of those play into her now a little bit more because she wasn't exactly pushing away, but she was also on the, uh, on the side that Peter was on, which was trying to be mom and dad trying to sort everything out. But if it's blue, um, it's more of a, um, a darker Navy blue kind of. And if it's Navy blue, then it means empathy and calming and caring and, Coleman kind of fits all the blues together. I guess it kind of works into Edsman's, but not as much. So if it's blue, which I guess there is a Royal blue. I don't know if that, it. let's just say it could have been Royal blue. That way it just fits in with the royalty that they're given. So it's yeah. the blue that, Susan has is empathy, calming and caring. And it's all that jazzy stuff that blue gives away. Now you can like blue is sadness and stuff like that, but that's not, obviously we're not going for the negative tones that colors give away. Anyways, Lucy is Lucy the valent. So it, it's red. It's love, passion, care. It's all those things that make an innocent child innocent. And they do the exact same thing in uh, Schindler's list. There is only one color that is ever, well, one color that stands out, and it's red. And there's a little girl that's wearing red. And so this kind of also, I don't know if it's the exact same thing. Uh for Schindler's list, it was more or less for innocence. Just like this is how impactful, this is how important innocence is when talking about the Jews during this time. This is not exactly that same way. It's more or less mm-hmm. a, there is innocence within this child, and we're given it. Throughout the whole movie that she has the center sense and she's, she's ultimately the one that kind of leads them into this wonderland, which feels imaginary. Yeah. In the beginning of it and then it kind of flows and we settle with it, but that's the colors that they're given in capes. I have no idea. I think they're somewhat on the same tones when they're their older versions. Mm Mm-hmm. But for the most part, that's that's their biggest thing. I mean, I know their thrones have like symbols on them, but the symbols are a little bit easier. Whereas color is a little bit more punchy. Whereas the, the yeah. red for uh, Lucy is the one that stands out the most. And then it also in Edmund, it stands out because it's just a brighter color on the whole spec. Now, the whole room's like gray, but the light blue and the red punch a little bit harder. Gold does and then the, the the navy blue, royal blue, whatever, doesn't really stand out. But it's the, it's the, it's the, it's what they were going for. It's what they were trying to say. Here's where our characters are right now because of character arcs.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when we finally get to this, we get to see kind of, it's kind of like a, it's our following action. You know, we're reflecting on the adventure that we have gone on. We get to see the outcome of our characters changing um, in, in this world, right? We get to see the outcome of what they've done. Is now being shown to us, right? So it's after this. Uh, we see them many years in the future. They are riding in the forest, and they come across that same lamppost that led Lucy into Narnia to begin with. And it's kind of fitting that Lucy, being the one who, uh, one of the ones who helped like draw them into Narnia, is also the one that draws them out of Narnia, right? It's fitting that that's this. the same. It's the same person who does that. Um, that being the youngest of the four of them. And at the end, you know, we see the professor, he's like, what are you doing in the wardrobe? And they said, ah, if we told you, you wouldn't believe us. And he goes, oh yeah, try me. And then he cut the credits with a small and a uh, small mid credit scene of Lucy trying to get back into the wardrobe. And uh, Professor's like, ah, uh, yeah, oh, I've tried it. The war, you don't go to the wardrobe. The wardrobe comes to you, right? Narnia will come to you when you, when they need you, when it's time for you to come back. Foreshadowing the yeah. next, well, the books. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
2: Not the next movie,
1: right? And then roll credits. So before we actually get into our final thoughts, I do want to know if you guys have any criticisms of this movie because now that we are older, um, it has been a couple years since I last watched it. Are there things here that you know that you, I guess, take issue with now? that you never really saw before or didn't have an issue with before, or back when you were younger? Um, Are there things in the story that you feel make the story not as, I guess, great in your mind as what it was when you were a
2: kid now that you are older watching it? Man. I I am trying to break that nostalgia barrier to be critical. It is hard. I will say I like what you brought up about the battle and how uh, the pacing is a little punchy, back and forth, a little choppy. Um yes, a little bit. And I have seen a lot of other movies with wars in it, uh, to this day making this one seem like not because the the final battle in this movie is like one one eighth of the movie. Right. It's not like a it's not like um like a fourth or anything or even a fifth. Like it's 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 very small. Um I guess it's not as it's not underwhelming though. That's the thing. It's enjoyable. Yeah. I don't know. I I guess the CGI and green screening, that is one big thing. But again, I noticed it as a kid. But I gave him grace. I was like, whatever. I know yeah. it's not real. Yeah. But I don't know. I I don't have anything huge. What do you guys have? I don't. Maybe, yeah. That, maybe I will after you
3: guys. That lighting and green screens gets starting to get thrown off just a tad bit with the, uh, after the, uh, fourth time when the, uh, there is one part where they, um, zoom between the, or they do a flyover between the, uh, Peter and, oh, who's the horse dude that stands next to him during the final battle? No. no. that's, that's Oh, that's, Aureus. Yeah. Yes, Aureus. There is a one part where, like, the, Peter and Aureus don't, move as fast as they should when it's doing a pan across to the uh, the white witch coming up and stuff like that. That that part got me a little bit, like, just a tad bit. It's not very noticeable unless you're looking for it, which obviously I'm looking for those things. Well, I can give some of the things that I noticed. Uh, the character of Susan,
1: um, I don't think she's given a whole lot to do in this story. Yes. Um, the more I try to talk about her and try to justify, or not try to justify, but try to, like, you know, say, okay, well, yes, yeah, she is very much a proponent more. She's the more logical of the four, right? She, and she gets the bow and arrow, which takes a lot of calculation as to how to aim at your target, right? That's about as far as it goes. I don't really see a whole lot of, you know, this is her character in the opening and she needs to change to reach, you know, to be, to be a better of herself in the ending, right? I don't know. I don't see, the change in her being something that is as drastic or as per, as personal as the one through either either Ed, Ed, either Edmund uh, or Peter. Right. I always found the care, and especially now, I see the character of Susan to be more of a background character. She doesn't. She's not given as much time, or as much writing, and as much development to her as the other three are. Which kind of makes the family dynamics feel a little bit disjointed because she feels like the one who gives given the least amount of attention of the four that we have.
2: Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that she only gets one kill of the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> she yeah. she gets the coachman, Ginebrick. Right. I do ah! know she has a bigger role in the next one,
1: if, if I remember right. Yes. yes. But.
2: And then yeah. Don there she and Peter are not in it at all. Because mm-hmm. their time with Narnia is done. Right.
1: Exactly. So that was one of the things I, I noticed this time around is the character of Susan is one that I'm just that I don't know I'm not I'm having a hard time connecting to her. Right. Um, that's one of mine. I guess the other one, uh, you guys have already mentioned it, the The battle sequence. I understand why they cut back and forth um, because they're showing, you know, the ho- they're, they're starting off with the battle already being hopeless. Yes. Um, and to add to the fact, uh, you know, Aslan, he's dead, right? And then we got to get that hope that builds up when he comes back. Um, so I understand that part of it. I think the other thing, the only problem is, like I mentioned, it is, it's kind of choppy. And even honestly, I feel like the, just the second half of the film just kind of in general is kind of choppy um because it will jump from scene to scene um like one like okay the good example of this is when they they exit uh the uh the waterfall scene with the ice breaks apart and they exit that and it turns starts turning into into spring right um they we hear a, a brief line of oh Aslan, we're going to, about how they're going to go to Aslan's camp and they're going to meet with Aslan now that they know that he's, you know, that he's around. Um, they cut to Aslan's camp, right? Kind of a big, a big jump um, from where we were to where we, to Aslan's camp, right? We get some conversation in. Next thing we know, there's a scene of a couple of, or a group of, those from Azon's camp going and saving Edmund, right? Without the witch knowing, right? It, this this whole sequence up until part and up until close to the end, it just feels kind of choppy, right? They're it's like they're trying to get important moments in the book that they needed that they need to touch on, uh, but the way that they get there is not exactly the most fluid way of of that's not very fluid, right? That's something that I noticed this time around. Is that the second half to me? A little bit choppy compared to the first half.
3: Well, I mean, this is like two hours and thirty minutes long. I mean, yeah, you are correct. So it,
1: there's a lot to get through, and I'm and that's understandable from a book like this. Uh, you don't really want to upset too many fi- too many fans because it has its fans, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I understand. You know that it, based off of a book, you know, there's going to be obvious things that you need to cut and change. But this is one of the things that I know is from a filmmaking perspective. This is a problem that I have. Mm. Um, I mean that's other than that, uh, I mean I guess it's it might just be me um being as old as I am. I found once they get it, once all the kids are in in, are in Narnia, um I didn't find all of the sequences to be very engaging. Um there are some sequences where I focus just it's just dragging on. Um partially when they go to when they go to uh, try and stop Edmund from going to the White Witch with the Beavers. Um, you know, it's just like these scenes just kind of drag on um, a little bit longer. Uh, than I would have liked. It's not that bad, but I I, I wonder, you know, if it wasn't for the ba- ending battle sequence of this film, how much would I remember it? Right. That's my I guess my biggest question. Leaving this review, right? If the ending battle sequence wasn't there, how much impact would this still have on me? I I I. It's hard. It's impossible. It's impossible to tell. But it's still a question that I feel like I, I have to ask.
2: You can really. I don't like to compare the two. But you look at Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and yes, that final battle in the third one, it leads up to that, is crazy. And even the battle at helms deep in the second one is pretty wild and lengthy. But and I don't like playing the compare game. But yes, the the battle at the end of um, Narnia is pretty monumental for, its, for the movie itself. Um, I like what you're saying about, uh, will I remember it? I think about it and you think of the characters and the design and a lot of it it's not like Lord of the Rings at all yeah. in a sense it's yeah. it's a little underwhelming but it's more b- biblical which I think is what But I think
3: that I think that rating does catch it yeah the rating PG does catch it a little bit and stop it from going too far I think Disney had its restrictions it's hand over it obviously
2: right I mean I'd like to see Peter Jackson take on Narnia oh, that'd be that'd be interesting <laughs> my
3: word
1: Yeah I and I think part of my issue of me wondering you know if it wasn't for the spectacular ending that we have the the big climactic battle um I feel like you know this movie is most definitely spectacle over substance right this is a Disney movie after all um you know the kind of the I guess the kings of spectacle almost uh, well I even now I would definitely consider them to be that way but my point my point is that you know whereas the book, from what I remember, like I said, it's been years since I've read it. The book is very is very allegorical, right? It likes to pull a lot of elements from the Bible, and while yes, they are still here, I feel like the main focus of the film is not necessarily on its characters or what it's trying to or what it's trying to show or what what the what points it's trying to make with its story. It's more about it's more about spectacle. Um, that's kind of an issue, I guess. I, I have of it is that being that it is you know trying to be somewhat of the Lord of the Rings-like of an adventure, but more for a different audience, um, how much of this film was lost due to that fact, right? I mean, this is a $180 million budget that we have here. That's monstrous. Even for 2005, that's a huge budget. Mm-hmm. Now, for Disney, it's, you know, for a movie like this, like I said, rather typical. But my point, I think my point still stands, you know, if this wasn't so much about spectacle, then it was about more character-driven um, or even following more of like that allegorical side of things, you know, what different would it be would it have been? Now, I haven't read the books in a while, so I they, the books could be somewhat similar in that same criticism that I have, but I'm still viewing this as a film, right? That's kind of where I'm at with it is these characters that are in the story, I think that they're good characters. and while still being hollow enough for kids to kind of fill in, you know, one of the Pe- Pevensey kids, are ones that I'm going to uh, I'm going to identify with. Like for me, what I, I mentioned it was Peter. I I feel like I really connected with Peter because of my role in this side of my family, right? So I wonder, you know, what would be different had they taken a, a slightly different route where it wasn't all so much spectacle, more of like the character or, or focus more on the story or its allegories or et cetera, right? Okay, well, I think that just about wraps up uh, our review of Chronicles of Narnia. But of course, as we usually do, we I want to hear your guys's final thoughts. So, Andrew, Tommy, uh, what are your guys's final rating, final thoughts, and ratings on Chronicles of Narnia: The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Tommy,
2: I will always hold this song, uh, this movie, near and dear to my heart because of just that time in my life and how monumental it was. Uh, how much of it impacted me cinematically it was just such a turnaround from what i used to watch and what i was allowed to watch this the music has always stood out to me as my favorite score of all time to this day beats out anything Hans zimmer's ever put out there anything that john williams ever put out there like this this is uh this is this theme music is something else and it sticks and it is definitive you know you hear it and you think oh narnia holy cow yes so, And I always look for that in a score. Um, and so Narnia does that. And yes, like what we've said today, yes, there are elements to it that, you know, don't carry it like it should. Um, I will still back it up and tell anybody this is a beautiful movie for the most part. It It is fantasy. If you like fantasy, you're going to like this movie. If you like weird characters, like weird... Uh, fantasy characters, not like humans or anything like that, but like, I'm talking fantasy characters. Yes, this has it. Um, and C.S. Lewis and what he stands by, I also stand by. So um, what he put in symbol uh, symbol symbolically in this movie, I just, I appreciate and I enjoy. So I give this movie, it's been a nine and I don't want to bring it down, but I can't bring it to a 10. Is that missing element of uh, some of the choppiness or like, you know, some of the things that will, I remember this if this didn't happen or this didn't happen, like these things that carried it. So I can't bring it to that 10. Um, Even the nostalgia can't bring it to that 10. Uh, Nostalgia brings it to the nine and on moves from the nine. Uh, But just because the, the nostalgia is not the main factor, it's just because of the score, uh, What it means, how, even how Disney was able to take those biblical elements and not shove it down your throat. This is biblical. But if you know the story, they were, they honored it. They honored those biblical symbol, symbolisms. Uh, So that's why I really appreciate and love this movie. Uh, So I gave it a nine out of 10 and I definitely recommend it. Okay. Andrew. I Yeah totally agree with Tommy on pretty much everything is going
3: on. It's a little bit of the choppiness that stops me a little bit of the, a little bit of the green screen and the technical side of, I guess you could say CGI is, is a bit forgivable given its age. Now it is from the two thousands and there are movies before it that had better, you know, green screening and lighting, but there are movies after it that have even worse of just any of that. And so it's just in that weird era where it's beautiful. And what. The green screen, I mean, what they use the green screen for, like the backgrounds that they put are beautiful. They are very hard to distinguish every once in a while. It's just when you're given the technology of this camera or the lighting, then that's when it stands out. That's when it becomes a little bit more noticeable. The pacing is a little bit off in a couple of places. Like we were talking about the large battle scene. It makes sense that you talk about the engagement factor of it. And I think they use, they, I don't think they explore, explore the world. Just enough. But I mean, it's, well, it's, you said the halfway mark is when Aslan comes out. But right. yeah, it's way before that, that we're given the world. And we're given the word and we're given characters. But for the most part, we're not like Lord of the Rings or like Star Wars, for instance. It's not like that world building. We're not like engaged and what else is going on in the world except for oh, Aslan's creating an army, but we don't know all that entails with that. I think that's a little bit of what's missing. I don't know if that's like how the C.S. Lewis wrote it or that's how the writers wrote it. So it's it's it's. I mean, obviously the nostalgia factor is still there. This is stuck with me for the the longest time. This is obviously one of the earliest movies that I can remember that's been still there Uh, a lot of the movies i can't remember a lot of things from but when we were told that we were going to do a podcast about narnia i was like oh uh, i haven't seen that forever but now that we're ramped back up into it i understand why it's been still hovering around wherever we go i mean obviously it's one that stands out more than the other so yeah along with even though i talked about mostly negatives i do give it a nine out of ten it is that nostalgic factor and just The how they did it was very well done. Even though I don't think the cinematography was like the greatest, it is still that respect that Disney gave. I mean, Pixar did it before with uh, Prince of Egypt. No, DreamWorks. DreamWorks gave it before with Prince of Egypt. So it's not like they're ripping it out, but at least they're not like shoving it down our throats. So Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and nostalgia is a very powerful thing, right? Um, I mean, that's one of the main things we decided to do this retrospect or this this trilogy is because we have a lot of nostalgia, especially for this first movie here, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. And that, as you guys have both mentioned, it's really hard, nigh impossible to discount the nostalgia factor when talking about a movie like this, right? Uh, this is a movie that we have all grown up with, um, this is a movie that I've at times have connected with, given my stage of life, right? And this is a movie where, growing up, I still find joy in watching it. I absolutely still love, find joy in watching it. I mean, I own the Blu-ray. Uh, I bought it for a reason, right? Um, but coming into it this time, I was trying not to... St- I was trying my hardest um, without, you know, being unreasonable, trying not to be unreasonable, at least, trying my hardest not to have that nostalgia factor, you know, cloud my... Uh, what criticisms and what thoughts I could give to this movie, Right? I don't want to go in saying that, oh, everything's amazing of this movie. I want to at least, you know, talk about some of the things that might not be, you know, quite so amazing now that I'm older and looking back on it. Um, as as all, that, all that to say, I tried to take off the rose-tinted glasses, however hard it might it, might, it may have been. Um, and I still will admit that I think that I'm still clouded by some nostalgia, but it's still a movie that I still very much enjoy, because despite that nostalgia factor. Right, there are still elements to the story that I very much, very, very much enjoy. There is still a level of filmmaking here that I think makes it still as something that I can so engage with. The music is one of those things where, despite uh, m- anything else that has happened, the music is like, like with you, Tommy, one of my favorite elements to the story because of how well and how seamless it works with the story and how well uh, composed it is. Um, even the action scenes, while not necessarily anything that uh, you know, a more adult film would have had, like Lord of the Rings, um, it's definitely something that is still impressive and something that I still like to watch. Um, and for, I still have to give criticisms, as I've mentioned, it's still one that I, even though it is two and a half hours long, I still feel that two and a half hour long length, right? Uh, I wonder what they could have done to shorten it, but at the same time, and as I mentioned, uh, as a question I asked just a little bit ago, how much of this would have changed given how, given taking out some elements, right? How wh- how different would the story be if they just, if Disney decided to go more on the allegorical and following the story harder, following the story, following the story more, following its characters more than it was trying to build spectacle. Um, I think they tried to do, try to find the middle ground between that, but I still feel at the end of the day that these characters are still kind of hollow. Uh, you know, especially with the character of Susan, the story feels kind of—it's always, you know, a lot of fun to, to watch, but at the same time, I feel it's just it's overshadowed by what Disney tried to show us with its spectacle uh, when it comes to you know the world that they build with Narnia. So all of that aside, I still very much enjoy this movie, and of course, I will return to it but it is one that I guess now looking back on it, being as old as I am is not as good as I remember it being. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So at the end of the day, I think I'm gonna go with a seven out of 10, but I'm still gonna give it a rather high recommend because I still think that this is a well done film, just some things in it that I don't feel hold up for, for me over the course of time. Okay, well, that wraps up our review of Chronicles of Narnia, the, the, the line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Tommy, Andrew, thank you for joining me on this review.
3: Thank You're you. You're
2: welcome. For having us. There you go, Tom.
3: It
1: has been a joy reviewing these with you guys. I'm really excited for next week and the week after that to look at a film that I've seen one time, that being Pris Caspian in the theater when it was released, and a film I haven't seen at all, that being The Don, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what those movies hold in store. And given what we started with, you know, and the next film, I remember, if I remember correctly, that there's a couple more action scenes that are similar to what we've already seen in this one. uh, But it's also a little bit more adult. So I'm excited for next week to see what's going to be like.
2: Yeah. Let's just say that we're about to jump into a new age of Narnia under new jurisdiction and it's a little bit more brutal. Yeah. So I'm excited. I'm really
1: curious to see what my thoughts are on that. Cause like I mentioned, I've seen it one time and that was, Only when it was released in theaters. Uh, Actually, Andrew and me and my mom went and watched it. Yeah, we did. I remember that now. Yeah. Alright, well, thank you listeners for joining us on this review of Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Again, we will be coming back next week with the sequel, Prince Caspian, and of course, the week after that, with Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And following that, actually between those two reviews, Corbin and I will be back um, reviewing a Halloween special. I don't know if we want to give away right now. I don't, uh, we I think we're, we know what we're going to be be talking about but i don't know if we're going to keep that a surprise so stay tuned for that because i know corbin and i are very excited to get back into it uh get back into podcasting again especially after he's been gone for a number of weeks so once again thank you listeners for joining us and we'll see you next week
2: bye, bye.
0: Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, google or stitcher or your favorite podcast service and while you're at it please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you so don't forget to share with your friends and family and we'll see you next week listeners
3: Anything, Andrew? I'm tired. You tired? got a lot of work to do. Also, why do I sound like trash? That's your fault. No, it's not. Oh, well. For Peter, that magnificent is gold. And gold is kind of like our highest color that we can say. I mean, people are like, oh, but there's platinum and there's diamond. I'm like,
2: there's carbon fiber.
3: There's carbon fiber. But gold, for the most part, back in...
2: I'm sorry. I got you off of your train of thought. <laughs> you have ADHD. I knew better than that. Gold is the highest. Gold color. is
3: one of the highest colors that we
1: uh, look towards. And Stay tuned for that because I know Corbin and I are very excited to get back into it. Uh, get back into podcasting again, especially after he's been gone for a number of weeks.
2: It's the nut job. It's the nut job. Just oh, right. oh, the nut job too? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Wait, what is
1: that one called?
2: That's the scariest one of all. Wait, there's a second one? Yes. yes.
1: There's a second one.
2: Nice. Wait, what's it called? I got to figure out what it's called. I think it's just called Nutty na- by Nature. Oh, okay. Nutty by Nature. That, we're running out of ideas. That's like
3: uh, Open Season 5, Scared Silly. Yes.
2: Yes, that's right. They made a fifth one.
3: Get ready. Get set. Get nuts. That's just one of its things. That's one of its taglines.